This podcast is brought to you by CEW Plus at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor as we work to serve our community during this unprecedented time of change. Resiliency is best demonstrated in times of challenges. Join CEW Plus Advocacy Program Manager Liz DeBetta as she talks to students, staff, faculty, and community members connected to the University of Michigan Center for the Education of Women in our podcast, Strength in the Midst of Change. Welcome to Strength in the Midst of Change. Today's podcast features Lauren Shandeville, a UM alum of the Ford School of Public Policy and creator of the crowdsource document, Being Not Rich at UM, which serves as a guide for low-income students on campus. Lauren currently lives in New York City and is a Northeast campaigner for Jobs Move America, a strategic policy center that works to advance a fair and prosperous economy rooted in racial and economic justice and community organizing. Lauren, it's my honor to speak with you today. Welcome to Strength in the Midst of Change podcast. I would love it if you could introduce yourself, tell us about your story and why you came to UM. Sure. So I am originally from Warren, Michigan, which is a large suburb just outside of Detroit. We're known for a couple things. One is automotive manufacturing. The other is the trailer park from the movie Eight Mile is here. <laughs> so when I was younger, during my freshman year of high school, I actually switched high schools. I did school of choice, which is not a policy that I advocate for, but it felt like my only option at the time. And I ended up attending a high school about 15 minutes away. That was in a wealthier district. And so they had more AP classes and extracurriculars. And a lot of the kids there had families who had gone to college. And so they were also very focused on college. And that was important for me applying to Michigan because I, I really didn't know a lot about college at the time. My dad went to community college and left after a year. And my mom has her associate's degree from a technical school. So I was really in the dark when I was applying for universities. And so I followed a lot of my peers at the time to the University of Michigan. And I had a, a pretty good like base of friends going in, which really helped the transition to a lot of like working class students don't get that kind of thing. And so that's how I ended up at Michigan was just, I followed a lot of the people that I went to high school with there. And yeah, spent four years there in undergrad and, and loved it. Tell me a little bit about the Being Not Rich at UM document and what inspired you to create it and compile it. Yeah. So this feels like a piece of history. Back in January 2018, I think it was, I was a junior at U of M and the student government at the time put out an affordability guide for students. And in that affordability guide, they had advice like, if you want to save money, fire your maid, sell your car. It was very tone deaf. And a lot of students, especially low income students, were pretty upset about it. And there were a lot of posts on Facebook and Twitter kind of calling it out. And so I had this idea to open up a Google document and like start another guide that sort of offered real advice to low-income students by low-income students. My idea originally was to have just like a, a small cohort of first-gen low-income students write the guide and somehow distribute it. But as more and more people started using the Google Doc, I decided to just open it up and make it so that anyone could comment. And then I would go through and accept their suggestions. And after a while, it grew to like 200 pages of advice about housing and getting a job on campus and scholarships. And 
yeah, it was a really beautiful thing and people got a lot of use out of it. And I, I think they still do. Is it something that you regularly update so that it stays as current as possible for incoming students? Because that does sound like a really valuable resource, particularly at a place like U of M where there is so much privilege, right? Yeah, I do try to regularly update it. It was hard for a while because I was living abroad and so I didn't have access to my U of M account. So in that time it got very messy and was almost unusable. So when I came back, I had to clean it all up and accept all the comments and change the sharing settings. So it looks a lot better now, but I try to keep it current and people are always adding comments. That's awesome. It's a valuable resource and that's the way we kind of come up with social change, right? Is like in response to something that is really tone deaf or that <laughs> it does not serve everybody, right? And then you think like, okay, I've got to do something about this. So good for you. Yeah. It was a really beautiful moment of consciousness, I think, on campus because low-income first-gen students, I mean, we have the first-gen at U of M student group, which, you know, does a lot of really great work. I think that affordability guide and the response to it was a way of like raising consciousness in a way that was sort of happening with all of the student activism on campus, but it, it really like raised a lot of those issues and raised awareness on campus. So it was, it was really beautiful. Yeah. I love that you use the word consciousness and the idea of consciousness raising. And that kind of brings me to the next question, which is that you majored in public policy with a minor in community action and social change at U of M. So I'm curious about what did you hope to accomplish with the degree and has that come true for you now in the years subsequent to your graduation? Yeah. So when I decided to do public policy, I honestly did not really know what public policy was. And this is still a question that I get from people when I tell them that I studied public policies. What is that? And, you know, I think I, I had a lot of mentors in undergrad who came from working class backgrounds like I did and were able to describe how studying public policy helped them understand their material conditions growing up and understand the world. I feel like when you can understand the history of the policies that shaped a place, it's kind of like the matrix. Like you can really see how everything came to be. And so that's that's why I studied public policies. So I could understand my own background and my own community and hopefully use policy as a tool to make things better for people, not just in my community, but you know, in communities everywhere. And then community action and social change is a minor that's offered through the School of Social Work. I think it's their only, at the time it was their only program for undergrads and it was very community organizing focused. And so I think my goal with studying both of those was to find kind of the intersection of public policy and community organizing because, you know, people who organize often don't understand these sort of higher level policy issues and people who make policy often don't understand communities and people. And so I was really trying to merge the two. And I think in the years since, I have really managed to strike a good balance. I've worked in community organizing positions. And currently, in my current job, I work for Jobs to Move America calls itself a strategic policy center. But we also have a lot of people on the ground organizing. And we work with a lot of unions. And so I get to do policy research and corporate research and also help unions organize. And it's a, a really great combination of those two things that I was interested in. That sounds really like exciting things to study, particularly, you know, since the time that you've been at U of M and like in these subsequent years where there is so much 
awakening to the, the sort of inequities. I mean, not that there's not been knowledge of it, right? But like the students who are recognizing that there's lots more community organizing that it is an effective way of creating change. And I love what you said about the difference between the people making policy, not understanding the communities, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges. And so when we have people like you who are interested in those intersections and then getting into doing the work that allows those gaps to be bridged, I think that's super important. So that being said, I would love to know a little bit more in detail about your career trajectory after graduating from UM and how you have continued to tie these things together in that. Of course, yeah. So U of M really helped me sort of launch into the career that I'm in now. The nonprofit that I ended up working for right after I graduated was called We the People Michigan, and their mission is to create multiracial working class alliances across the state of Michigan. I actually interned with them during my senior year at U of M for, I think, a class that I was doing or maybe for the community action and social change minor. But I had this requirement to have an internship and I interned with them and that turned into a job. And so right after college, I was working for them as their Macomb County organizer based in my hometown organizing here. And I did that for a while and then COVID hit and I started working for former Congressman Andy Levin in his district office as a constituent services representative. And so that was another way to really get to know my community and to bring community voices into the policymaking process in particular. His office was really great. The DC staff, which focused on policy, was like really close with our district staff, which focused on constituents and their problems. And we talked regularly and really tried to bring the issues that our constituents were having to our policy staff so that they could make policy that was, you know, retrofitted to the issues that our constituents had. And so it was a really great, like, synergy that we had in that office, bringing community voices into the policymaking process. And then after that job, I went to the University of Oxford and got my master's in public policy. And that was a really great experience. That was about a 12-month program that I lived abroad and I learned a lot. Our cohort had people from, you know, I think over a hundred different countries. And so I learned a lot about how other countries make policy. And after I graduated there, I, I moved to New York City and that's that's where I have my current job at Jobs to Move America. And we're a policy shop. And what we try to do is get community benefits agreements with manufacturing companies. And so a lot of these manufacturers contract with government agencies when these agencies want, you know, say they want subway cars, the MTA will contract with a rail car manufacturer and use public money to pay them in the contract. And so we use the fact that they're paying for this with public money to say, well, you know, if you're using our tax dollars, you need to make sure that you're using union labor, that you're hiring locally, that you're paying a living wage and, you know, that sort of thing. So that's where I'm at now. I started that job a couple months ago and I've learned a lot and I'm I'm excited to keep going. 
I love that. It's it's amazing too to have that global perspective, right? Having gone to the University of Oxford and expanded what you started learning at U of M into that global perspective with your cohort of international students and scholars because of just the way we need to operate in the current global economy and recognizing that like here in the West, we don't have all the answers. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That was a huge takeaway for me. It was because I mean, there there were a handful of Americans in the program, but like that was really the bulk of the Western cohort. Everyone else was from, you know, everywhere else. And so I, I learned a lot about how other countries think about policy and what is politically possible. And that was a really great way to broaden my political imagination. I love that political imagination. I think we need more of that. <laughs> so let's Absolutely. like put that out in the world. Yeah. <laughs> what does that mean for folks? We'll leave that as them food for thought for the listeners to think about what is your political imagination, particularly in these days right now where there's so much happening <laughs> that mm-hmm. is not so good for so many people. No, no. Our no. political imagination is very limited right now, unfortunately. Sadly and frighteningly which is kind of a good segue into thinking about self-care, right? Because one of the things that we do like to do on this podcast is close conversations with self-care practices so that our listeners can have a takeaway and some imagination around what they might be able to do to care for themselves. So can you tell me a little bit about your own self-care practices? Yeah. So I've been I've been moving around nonstop since I graduated from U of M. And so it's been hard for me to develop a self-care routine that sticks. But I would say consistently, wherever I am, taking a long walk always helps. Being outside and especially interacting with other people. Now I live in New York. And so, you know, even just being out and seeing my neighbors and interacting with people on my block is a a great way to ground myself in the present. So that is my self-care routine. I love that. I did a lot of walking during COVID for the same reason. Yeah, me too. Grounding. It was a way to see people. Sanity (laughs) restoring. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And also therapeutically speaking, I learned this from my therapist. It is a bilateral activity. So it helps both sides of your brain to sort of recalibrate. And it's a good way of processing. And so like in terms of my own self-care, I have I have used long walks as a way of processing. You know, so that's an excellent tip. Is there anything else you would like to share with our audience before we close out our conversation today? I mean, I, I guess the only thing that I'll say is like first generation low income college students are incredible activists. And I know that that sort of activism has exploded over the last five to 10 years. And I, I hope it continues because we're, we're a really powerful cohort and we can do a lot in higher education. I hope so too. And that is a great call to action for folks, for our listeners, for the students that are thinking like, how do I do this work of social change? Just by showing up and using your lived experience. Yeah. Leverage your power. The fact that you managed to get to a university that so many people have been kind of like born and bred for, you know, a lot of people knew that they were going to college from a very young age and a lot of first gen low income students don't have that experience. So the fact that you're there is so powerful and so incredible in and of itself. And that is more than enough reason to be proud of yourself. 100%. 
Thank you so much for being with me today on Strength in the Midst of Change. I wish you all the luck in your new position as you move forward in your career and making good trouble. I hope that the listeners take away all the things that you've shared with us because there's some wonderful stuff here. Thank you so much. Thank you, Liz. Thank you for listening to CEW's podcast, Strength in the Midst of Change. To learn more about this episode or the services and virtual programming offered by CEW+, please visit cew.umich.edu. Here at CEW+, we navigate circumstantial barriers by providing academic, financial, and professional support to help you reach your personal potential. Established to support women through higher education, we lift up women and all underserved communities at the University of Michigan and beyond. Through career and education counseling, funding, workshops, events, and a diverse, welcoming community, we exist to empower. We are CEW+, and we are here to help you reach your potential. The University of Michigan resides on the traditional territories of the three fires peoples, the Ojibwa, Odawa, and Potawatomi. 